Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientists, the program where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. Last week, we relaunched our Titans of Science segment, where periodically we talk to some of the biggest movers and shakers of the science world. Last time, space station commander and musician Chris Hadfield drew us into his orbit with a fascinating account of his life and career. Well, this time, we're coming very much down to earth with a surgeon from South Africa who's revolutionising the use of robots in medicine. Mark Slack was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. He grew up in a mining community called Springs, which is just outside the city. And although many of his friends went on to attend private boarding schools, Mark went to his local state-run Spring Boys High School, where actually he excelled academically, we're told. He attended then the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, and he completed his postgrad training in Obstengyne at the University of Cape Town, UCT. Mark completed compulsory military service, and he then spent time in Angola flying medivacs. He also campaigned to end apartheid in South Africa. He began working as a doctor in England in the 1990s, and he's brought a number of innovative medical products to market. He's now the chief medical officer and the co-founder at CMR Surgical, a company which is revolutionising how we do surgery using robots. In his spare time, he's passionate about sailing, rugby, we won't mention that, drama and football. Mark, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell us about your life in South Africa and growing up there. It was an interesting time. What sort of decade did your life begin in? Well, you know, I was um, growing up in South Africa at probably one of the darkest moments of its history. Apartheid was in full swing. This was in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Because I was, sort of, I suppose, lucky enough to be born into a liberal left-wing family. Um, so I had the negatives of it um, explained to me quite clearly from a young age. In terms of academic prowess, academic performance, interest in science. Are you from an academic family? No, not at all. My father um, was in the mining community and uh, with no higher education. And my mother was, um, again, um, not not formally educated with a higher education, but a very bright intellectual person. Presumably gold mining if you're outside Joburg. Yes, very much gold mining, yes. Those deep mines are, are not an understatement. I actually worked as a holiday job at university on um, gold mines for a year or two. So I had first-hand experience on, of it, yes. Going, going down those shafts? Yes. Because they're six, five or six kilometres deep, some of them. Yes, they go down. The, the, I think the deepest single drop is about one and a half kilometres, and then you get in a train and go to another one and you drop again. But um, I, I worked as a medical student um, in my holidays, controlling the, the lifts that went up and down. You'd go up and down in them. So they were dark, wet, cold, and um, but, but some very interesting and funny experiences in doing it. 
Sounds like some of the hospitals I've worked in. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But where did the interest in science stem from? You know, I suppose that's a sort of a personal journey as well. My primary ambition when I was at school was to run around a track um, two times faster than anybody else. I was a middle distance runner and that was my consuming ambition. And towards the end of school, I started getting injuries and then was shoved off to see a range of doctors because... As you probably know, in South Africa, sport is um, a religion, it's not a sport. And so when this um, young champion was no longer doing as well as he should have, I was sent to do the great and good of medicine. turned out that I had an underlying medical condition that contributed to the injuries. But was that what inspired you then to become interested? Was, was it the science or was it the human side or was it both that made you think, well, maybe this is a career for me? It's a combination. One, I suddenly got exposed to all these people doing something that I thought, gosh, that's interesting. Two, I admired the people that were looking after me and and sort of fixing me. And um, around about the same time, the teachers started saying to me, you know, you do quite well at school, you're quite bright, why don't you do medicine? And so the combination of the three sort of amalgamated. You went to Witts University to do that. What was the medical training like in South Africa? Obviously, it's an interesting country because it has huge prominence. Surgically, Christian Barnard being probably the best-known famous South African surgeon. The training was incredible. We were so spoiled. I mean, again, you know, I always say this with a tinge of sort of remorse in it as well because my class was virtually 90% white. And so it was also, um, we were benefiting from the legacy of apartheid. And, um, you know, the, the kids in my class were academically all totally capable. They all had straight A's. But um, we had a very well-funded education system. It's changed now, though, hasn't it? Things have, have flipped around in some respects. I was in South Africa recently. I met a young woman, white woman, who was at the top of her class, but she couldn't get into medical school because there were not enough places for white people now. Yes, I think I think there has been a positive discrimination act, which I find very difficult to criticise, given the decades that exactly the opposite happened to the black South Africans. And I think for South Africa to succeed, there has to be a degree of positive discrimination in favour of black South Africans. So I see the difficulty it creates for the individuals, and I feel very, very sorry for them. But I also see the need of the country to promote people who've been disadvantaged, and their parents wouldn't have had the same education, etc., etc. So I find that difficult to be critical of. You don't think there's a danger of it going too far and the country will lose some of its skill, some of its finance, I suppose, because people will will be pushed out and they'll take their skills and their money with them. In some ways, I sort of take a little bit of um, hope from the recent Rugby World Cup. When um, South Africa got rid of apartheid, there used to be a facetious term talking about rugby players, the black springboks, they would call them quotas because there was a quota of having X number of black people in the team. And South Africa, as you know, has recently just won the World Cup with a team with a high number of black players who are 100% their own merit. So I sort of hope that the meritocracy will come back in, that you need it for a while to write things, but thereafter there are more than enough highly intelligent, talented black Africans who are capable of shining. So yes, to go to the other one, it's a terrible loss to South Africa of some of its real um, talent. And that's unfortunately for the low and middle income countries, an international problem. You go through medical school. Where does the, the military service fit into your career? Is that done 
before, during or after medical school? So when I was at school, uh, military service was supposed to be done at the end of school and um, it was one year and we could get um, permission to defer that to go to university, which I did, um, in the hopes that military service would have disappeared by the time I got to the end of medical school and by the end of medical school, military service was two years. So that was, that was an absolutely spectacular um, home goal. However, you had three choices. You did your military service or you went to jail, or you left the country, but there was no return. So I didn't have the moral fortitude to go to jail for seven years, so I elected to do my military service as a doctor serving in the army. I spoke to a South African who was in the armed service, and he said that military service was really quite fearsome in South Africa. He described an experience that they called the Garden of Pain. Are you you familiar I'm not familiar with that particular term, but um, it was quite fearsome and training was fairly fierce as well. I mean, it was an interesting one. I, I volunteered to serve most, a lot of my time in my national service in Angola because that way I wouldn't be serving against the South African. I'm sure there are lots of moral and ethical discussions about it. And one or two of my friends actually chose the other way and went to jail, for which I admire them terribly. But um, it is a difficult decision to make. What was the gig in Angola then? Because that's, that's a, a bit further, for people not familiar with the geography of Africa, that's a bit further up the, the continent. So what was the relationship there and why was there a presence in Angola? It's a complex one. I mean, South Africa um, had Namibia as a protectorate, which said, you know, was a legacy after the war, Second World War, and they, they controlled it and they wanted to keep controlling it. Angola was uh, under Portuguese control and the Portuguese suddenly left um, almost overnight at a point. There was a, there was a war of independence going on. There were three rebel armies fighting the Portuguese. And one was a Marxist-based, um, unsupported, and the other two were American-based. And um, the Portuguese suddenly said, oh, well, enough's enough, we're out of here. And they left, literally. So then they started a civil war with people supported in the north by Russia and Cuba, and um, the armies in the south supported by um, America and South Africa. And South Africa wanted to do it to keep the freedom fighters from Namibia further away from the border. But it was a South Africa supporting an Angolan civil war with Angolans fighting Angolans. So you did that for two years and then you came back. Was that when you travelled down south and went to UCT, University of Cape Town? The army, ironically, was the reason I landed up in gynaecology as well. Because So we would fly out of northern Namibia in, pick up the people, bring them back. They'd be operated and then we'd fly them home. And I did a time working for one of the rebel armies as well as a medical officer. But when you were on what they called R&R, rest and relief, I was then put in the military hospital in Pretoria and I was placed in the gynaecology department. And there was a really inspirational man there called Dick Legrelio, who's the head of the gyne department. And um, he said, oh, what are you going to do in the future? I said, oh, I'm going to be a physician. I'm, you know, that's my academic bent. And he said, oh, you probably can't pass the gyne exams. And anyway, cut a long story short, um, he persuaded me that this could be a really inspiring career. And um, I still had to think about it when I came out. I went back to thinking about doing internal medicine, but he had planted that seed. And then I moved down to Cape Town to do gynaecology formally as training. How long were you down there for? I was in Cape Town for about six years. 
and um, it was a combination of obstetrics and gynaecology. I worked at um, the famous Greater Scale Hospital where the world's first heart transplant was. And in fact, I can remember one day operating, doing a very, very minor procedure and then becoming aware of a plaque on the wall. And it said, this is the theatre where the world's first heart transplant was done. Um, and if, I'm pleased to say they've now converted it into a museum and it's no longer being used by low-level gynaecology trainees. <laughs> I've driven past that building just recently. In fact, I was in Cape Town quite recently, and it's it's a it's a big it's a very impressive building, isn't it? You drive past on the motorway from the airport going into Cape Town. Yeah, it's a beautiful building, the old Greater Scale. Of course, the main hospital is now in the modern building in, in the front of it, and that's largely medical school and and so on. But that's the hospital I trained and worked in. And um, the style of delivering care in Cape Town was quite unique. They had constructed, and it's something that I think the world could learn from. They had constructed. Yes, they didn't have enough doctors. So they promoted using what we called midwife units to deliver a lot of the babies who had strict protocols when you got to problems where there were problems, at, they would be transferred across to the main hospital. So they actually delivered a high level of care in delivering babies, but um, at a much more affordable way and without the same numbers that you would have had in Europe or UK in terms of obstetricians, gynaecologists. Many people who come to the UK from other countries, though, Pregnant women who are going to have a baby are quite surprised that we have midwife-led birthing units here. They're, they're quite used to a very medicalised way of having children in their own countries, America especially. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's, it's a very difficult and controversial area. Um, I don't think one size fits all. I think the two professions need to work closely together. And in fact, they have got that far more. You know, I think the argument, everything's got to be a natural delivery multiple reasons why that's nonsense and everything's got to be a medicalized delivery is equally not a good one and i think this this the hybrid model that cape town actually had and working with respect for each other and for the constraints and the limitations was was actually in retrospect an amazing system when did you first come to the UK? We all used to come to the UK to do a bit of extra training. I won't um, repeat the term that was used, but anyway. And it was coming to practice our surgery, and the NHS was seen as a fantastic place to practice. High levels of care, high volumes of work, low numbers of doctors. And so we could, I mean, the waiting list is almost like an August catalogue. You could, um, I'll have two of those, three of those. And, and we all came to district hospitals. So I trained in a, in a teaching hospital in Cape Town. And in fact, my whole career was in teaching hospitals. But I then actually came to work in a DGH in Canterbury in, in the United Kingdom. That was my first job. And, you know, it was just incredible experience. We saw so much and we were allowed to do a lot. So it was, it was a great early experience. I just forgot to go home. So that was literally the first and last time you came to the UK to do medicine or surgery? Yes, so I'd already been appointed. I'd been given a senior lecturer post in Cape Town and I was just coming for a year or two. And after my first year, I asked for an extension, which I got from Professor Davey. And then after my second year, when I said, could I have a third year as extension? He said, you make up your mind now. You either come home and your job is here or you stay there and your job is gone. And I stayed. When are we talking? Mid-90s? This was in the late 80s, early 90s. And I'll be quite honest, I mean, one of my reasons for staying was I really did not believe that the South African government was going to capitulate and give up apartheid. And a lot of us were looking for a way out of a system that we felt was um, just destroying a country, destroying people. And so a lot of my generation left. How did you then end up on this path to where we're sitting 
today? Because you, you've come to the UK, you're working in Obzingaini, and you're doing academic slash clinical work around that. But how does that translate into being a co-founder of what's dubbed in the industry a unicorn, a business that's gone from a startup to worth more than a billion in valuation in a very short space of time? Take us on that journey. So going back, Chris, to your original question, you said to me, you know, why medicine? And, you know, there was the personal meeting the doctors. There was the fact that my teachers were saying, well, you do quite well at school, so maybe medicine's a good line for you. To getting into medicine and finding, gosh, I really enjoy this. This is really fascinating. And there was just so much that I found interesting. And then when I qualified, it became even better. I really found I enjoyed it. I became quite sort of obsessed with it. And um, when I first came to the UK, I was now a qualified gynecologist and working in a DGH. But myself and an Australian colleague um, started um, introducing new operations, which hadn't been done in the UK before, which we introduced and wrote up and published. And I, I met this chap, Marcus Carey, from, who's the professor in Melbourne, and I met him in, in, in Canterbury. And we've now had a lifelong of working together um, academically. And that was the sort of the, the spark of what really became my expert. And I sort of realized I sort of think quite laterally and I would have ideas. And one of my professors took me aside one day and he said, you know, Mark, you've got some really interesting ideas in your head. Just keep them in your head until you have the proof to justify them. And that was the best advice I ever got because I then started learning to do the research to prove the points that I was trying to um, convey to people. And how does that turn into the technology that you've gone on to help develop? So the first one was we introduced an operation um, called sacred spinous fixation, which was the first paper of its kind in the UK, and it's a very uh, commonly performed procedure now. I was then doing a lot of research and doing a lot of pharmaceutical trials, and that's when I started finding that I would see things and think that doesn't make sense and perhaps it could be done differently. So I co-invented... Um, a machine to measure pressures in the bladder and so on, which we um, was then, it was taken to global launch by Johnson & Johnson. And then I did another operation with Marcus, which again, we took to global launch with J&J. And, and so it, it grows, you know, you start and then I suddenly realized, well, I have a sort of a skill here where I, I seem to have ideas that I can translate to something relatively useful. That was the next part of that journey ahead of the robotics starting. How did the robotics get started, though? Was that because all of a sudden there was a technological revolution? The Internet's there, so there's rapid transmission of information and data. There's computers that are sufficiently powerful to make this sort of thing possible. There's cameras and endoscopes and that kind of thing that make this kind of technology now possible. Is that how it happened? It's some of that, and there's a far more, there's a far more simple story as well. One of the things that's happening is I trained a lot of laparoscopic surgeons and realized that I couldn't train all of them to do the operation at a level that really it needed to be done at. Because laparoscopic or keyhole surgery, and we should rather call it for, for, for the listeners, is technically really difficult. And not everybody can master the technique. And so I was worrying, you know, what can we do? And, and, and then, of course, as you say, there's all this technological advance. There was a robot out on the market um, there was computer-driven early AI starting to help in all these areas. And I started to think, could a robot actually – it's got a variety of really 
it sounds like sympathy. It's got 3D vision instead of 2D vision. It's got magnification. You know, if you move your arm right, the instrument goes right. Whereas in keyhole surgery, when you move your arm right, the instrument goes left. You know, and it's, it's, it's just, there were lots of things I thought, gosh, that will make it easier to do. And I was then looking at the robots that were around and trying to work out whether this would be a solution. But that's not actually how I got into robots. And how did you get into robots then? So my wife was pregnant with our first son and um, she was attending the National Childbirth Trust and um, on her own. And after a couple of weeks, the woman in charge said, you know, do you have a partner? And she said, no, I'm married. And she said, well, you must bring him along. And my wife said, believe me, leave him at home. <laughs> Far less disruptive. Anyway, Luke, my co-founder then, came to my wife and said, I believe you're a surgeon. And she said, yes, I am. And he said, I want to speak to you about robotics. And he said, you're speaking to the wrong member of the family. The other one at home is going on about it as well. And so Luke and I, both of us with um, careers where we've done lots of innovation, lots of inventing, met by chance. And it's one of those, God, I'd be presumptuous to say, but it's almost like a Beatles moment where you meet somebody special who complements some of your own skills and talents. And, um, you know, Luke was just inspiring to meet intelligent beyond belief competent and he came around to my house um, as I always say in a car that shouldn't have been on the road and um, we sat down and started to discuss it uh, in my drawing room on the ground drinking diet coke and that's literally where it started imagine if you've been drinking whiskey it might have gone even better or faster. <laughs> exactly. I know. So, so Luke and I then, he would then come around every evening. He worked not far from where I um, lived. And he'd come around and we'd discuss things. Um, I had very clear ideas what I thought were important. He had very clear ideas. And um, then, of course, the other founders were there as well, um, you know, Paul and Keith and Martin. And um, so it literally started with five of us in Cambridge, all people working in and around Cambridge, most um, Cambridge graduates, or, or, but all working in the ecosystem. So what was the gap you spotted that you think, this is the existing solution, this is the problem, this is what we can solve, and what did you do about it? Well, I mean, the big gap is keyhole surgery has been around for 35 years. So if it was perfect, about 80% of surgery by now would be done by keyhole, but only about 40% is. Now, keyhole surgery has a million advantages over open surgery. It reduces infections, it reduces pain, it reduces complications. And yet, despite all these advantages, in America, um, in inverted commas, the most advanced medical system in the world, only 40% of surgeries are done by keyhole. So clearly, there's something wrong with keyhole surgery, and it is technically bloody difficult to do and beyond the reach of some people. So... Could the direct mapping, the 3D vision, the precision of the instruments, etc., overcome that? And that's what we set out to do. And the robot that Luke um, designed was an open console allowing good communication with the teams. The hand controls just make life so much easier. I taught one of the secretaries of state to tie a knot in about 30 minutes. If you were dealing with normal keyhole, that would take about 60 hours. Set the scene then. A person who sits down at your robot, what's their experience as a surgeon compared to if they've got to stand over the patient with the, the probes going in to do keyhole 
manipulations for people who haven't seen this you blow up someone's tummy with gas and then stick tubes down that you then put your tools in don't you so how does this differ when they're using your robotic experience you know the big way that i um, show this to people who um, are not necessarily keyhole surgeons and so on is i use a, a, a we call a dome so it's a model and i hang a tiny needle on the end of a string into the dome and i give them a normal laparoscopic kit and say pick up the needle and they can't. And then I do the same in a robot. I put the needle into a dome, I put the robot into it, and I say, try and pick up the needle. And instinctively, they can get across and pick up the needle. And so I believe we can train people much quicker um, and much more effectively on a robot than we can with keyhole surgery. Is the robot intervening in the procedure? So when you move, presumably a joystick or a paddle, to manipulate the objects inside the patient is that a direct connection or is the robot saying i know what mark wants to do but he's not doing it as well as he could so i'm going to intervene and change it a little bit to make it even better not yet not yet that's um, i think quite a while away at the moment it's a slave master so the surgeon rem- remains the master and the robot is a slave what it does it gives you better vision it gives you precision it gives you better control and as i said it reduces training duration but at the moment it's still 100 percent. all the decisions all the work all the movements are controlled by the surgeon that's um, operating it could you in the future do that though and could you see a future where you as an expert in some of those procedures that you've helped to pioneer could sit in cambridge and operate on somebody in cape town so there's a, this telesurgery is a big and interesting area. And some years ago, um, they did an experiment where a surgeon called Jacques Marisco operated in, in Strasbourg on a patient in New York. But in order to achieve that, they laid a cable. And they did it the day before 9-11. So got not a lot of publicity out of it. There's a trouble with the speed of light. If you're operating a very long distance away, when you move your hand, the instrument will be slow to move on the screen behind you. And technologically, we will overcome those things to a degree. So at the moment, what we do have is if you were, when we did our first lung case in Germany, the surgeon supervising, it was in the middle of COVID, was in England and was able to watch over a a television monitor and give advice. And so that's something that's growing quite fast. Actually, having a surgeon operate remotely, it's a whole different conversation because would you want your surgeon to be 300 kilometres away when things went wrong? I don't know. What about doing a road test on a procedure? If you're going to do something, everyone's different. Everyone's anatomy is different inside. So therefore, though we have a generic way of approaching things, it's the skill of the surgeon being able to drive over those bumps in the road that you you know are going to be specific for that patient. So can you take your system, take really high-quality scans of that person, build a sort of rendition, a mock-up, and almost play a computer game to, to try out your approaches to see what's going to be the best way down that road? Is that one way to learn or to try tough procedures? So now, Chris, you got me worried that you've been going through the company's files. <laughs> I think that's one of the most exciting areas. So I've just um, been visiting a simulation laboratory where they make really high fidelity um, models. And so, yes, I do see you could do a scan of a person's anatomy. You could build the model out of plastic or synthetic substances, and the surgeon could then 
practice the surgery ahead of going in. I do think that's um, within within um, reach very soon, in fact. Did you think this was going to take off the way that it did? I mean, did you see yourself sitting um, here? We're in one of your offices. That's a sign of success, isn't it? That you haven't just got one office in one building. You've got multiple buildings in multiple places. Did you see it taking this trajectory at this sort of pace and reaching this sort of scale when you started all this? No, not at all. I mean, as I always say, if I knew um, then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have started. But anyway, <laughs> um, here we are. Um, no, I, I thought it'd be like all my other um, projects that I'd um, brought in. I suspected I'd continue to be a gynecologist at Addenbrooke's practicing happily, and then I would do a day or two a week at the robot. But it just became impossible. I couldn't keep up. And um, while I've maintained a very close contact with my colleagues in Addenbrooke and I have an honorary contract, um, no, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I had to come full time because the volume of work was so high. Did I see it going where it's going? I hoped it would because I think that the future, you know, people don't realize, Chris, is that thousands of people, millions of people are injured and die as a result of poor surgery. And something's got to be done internationally to improve surgical training and surgical outcomes. And I think the robot is one of the ways of achieving that um, goal. I mean, a million people die a year in the world due to surgical complications. That's a big figure. We give the coronavirus a good run for its money. How do you switch off at the end of this? Is, is sport still? I know when you were younger you said it began really running around a racetrack that brought you into contact with the medical profession are you still doing that kind of thing you still derive that pleasure and that kind of switch off opportunity from sport or do you put your energies elsewhere yeah i don't think you know people said do i still run i said i think these days you'd call it jogging (laughs) um so no i don't run competitively at all i still like to um you know go out and do a bit of exercise i love sailing Um, my wife um, introduced me to dinghy sailing and um, it says nothing um, big or expensive. And we, we like as a, as a family to, to sail and my boys sail as well. And that's lovely. Um, I also have two daughters. They don't sail, but I, I'm, I'm sort of ambitious. I can persuade them to, to join us. Yes, no, so sailing for me is the, one of the places I get away completely. I walk away from everything and I get in the water and I'm pretty bad at it. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sailing for my life as such. Um, the other one is I, 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 I enjoy cooking. And I, I don't know that I'm a, a stunning cook, but it's again somewhere where I can switch off a bit and, and just enjoy it. And then I, I just enjoy time with the family, going for walks and things like that. I don't switch off as well as I should. And my wife does have a complaint about that. I think we have all been in that position, Mark. That was Mark Slack, who's the Obzingani surgeon and co-founder of medical robotics company CMR Surgical. Now, next time, there'll be a festive take on the week's science news, including a clinical trial to check that the doctor's office coffee machine isn't spreading diseases. And we'll also look at the science of champagne, as well as the massive marine dinosaur that turned up on an English beach. Plus some of the best computer games that you can play this Christmas. From all of us here at The Naked Scientists in the meantime, have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and thanks very much for listening to us and supporting us across 2023. The Naked Scientists comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith, and until next time, goodbye.
Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.